I mean, if you were like me and just didn't plan ahead and get to bed at a better time because you knew the time was yeah, thank you. So really, victims of our own bad choices. But, um, well, this morning I want to jump right into our uh, continued study here in Philippians chapter three. We're going to look at uh, verses twelve through sixteen here this morning. Um, and even though in many of the Bibles, uh, verse twelve is kind of set apart from the others based on chapter breaks and section breaks and however it may be. Um, I want us to see these as a whole as 12 through 16 comes right off of the tail of 7 through 11. They're, they're intrinsically uh, going to be extended there. Um, before we get into all of this, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you today uh, thankful for all that you have done. We thank you that you have given us this time to come to a safe and a, a quiet place to be able to devote ourselves in this time to prayer and to songs of praise, as well as the study of your word. God, I pray that in these next few moments as we think upon your word, as we hear it, as we listen, I pray that we would be attentive and that you would allow us to see you as we ought to. God, we love you and we thank you for all that you've done. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So picking up here in Philippians Chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Uh, just going back a few verses for a few moments. Uh, well, we looked at verses 7 through 11 last week. And we saw Paul, after he had given this entire resume, he had given all of the credibility, all of the status, all of the accomplishments, all of the accolades, whatever word we basically want to use for it. Paul had given all of these things. And if you remember, uh, Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was like the most Hebrew Hebrew possible. He was awesome. The best thing imaginable at the time. One of the smartest guys, had achieved the most, had accomplished the most. And then he says in verse 7, but what things were gained to me, those I counted for loss. And we talked about how he had forgotten all of these things, anything behind him, anything that he had done. He was counting all of these accomplishments as a loss. He wasn't using them to prop himself up making an argument to say, see, I'm better than you because I have done these things. See, I have more favor with God because of what I have done. He has said all of these things are canceled out in the end and goes so much as to say, calls it dung, it's scubalon. It's basically that stuff you step in that you don't want to step in when you're working on the farm. It is absolutely worthless. But if you remember, he didn't just say it was nothing as if there were no return for him. He's not just giving up all of these things, saying, I have all these accolades, I have all of these things, and I'm counting it as meaningless. He extends it to say, because he knows what he's trading it for. He is trading all of the job, all of the fortune, all the recognition, all the intelligence, all of these accomplishments, for what he mentions in verse 8, which is the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And you remember, we talked about that word, of knowledge, of the intimate knowing of who Christ is, how this is different than, oh yeah, I, I've seen the Jesus film, or I watched Passion of the Christ, so I know Jesus. We have intimate, deep, experiential knowledge of the person of Christ. So Paul is saying, all of these things I have forgotten, I have put away, I count it all as loss because I know what I have gained. And you remember using the illustration of Anyone here would gladly trade a dollar or five dollar bill, knowing in return you're going to get a hundred dollar bill. Sign me up on that in a hurry. Uh, the beauty is that my kids don't really understand 
that money has different value. He doesn't understand the difference from a 1 to a 10. So he thinks we're just trading dollars. It's a beautiful transaction that I get to have on my part. Um, I usually come out on top in those deals, so it's positive. So understand, Paul has, he is forsaking all of these things knowing what it is that he is receiving is far, far greater than any accomplishment he could ever have. And then he notes this in verse 9, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, which is what he had just explained, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So he talks about this righteousness of how before he thought his standing before God was simply based on works, based on accomplishments, based on doing things in the right ritualistic sort of way, and makes the point that righteousness is only truly through faith of Christ, which is of God by faith. And then verses 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. So that kind of catches us up with where we are here in verses 12 through 16. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore as many as be perfect, be thus minded, and if anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even unto you, even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. A portion of this text is very, very familiar to so many of you. It's probably the most familiar passage in the book of Philippians, of pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We're very familiar with it. We have a, a loose understanding of it. Um, but I'm going to ask, as I often do, just because we may be familiar, do not treat it as though we're good. We're set. I understand it. You don't even need to go to this. We can just press on, move forward to the next couple verses. Stay on it. Camp on some of these things. Because once we lose sight, we come to any verse, any text of Scripture, any theological point and say, yeah, I already know that. Give me something else. We're losing deep insights into all that it has to offer. So we're going to get into some of these things, and I'm going to attempt in my best efforts, as I always try, to move quickly through some of these things. So going all the way back into verse 12, he starts off by saying, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. He's saying that he has not already attained the resurrection of the dead, as he had mentioned in verse 11, that he's not yet arrived at his final destination for God's transformation of his life. He's saying, I have not already attained basically my end goal. Um, I'm going to loosely make a, a judgment call here and say none of us here would say, I have already attained all of my end life's goal. I am perfectly where I want to be at the end of my life. There is no further growth, no further transformation, no further conforming that could possibly be done, as he says here later in verse 12, either were already perfect. Paul makes a point I think we can all say an amen to. Nobody is perfect. Not even you. I'm looking at everybody here. I had to. 
You know how awkward that is to not try not to look at a person when you say you? It's very difficult, but <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Jamie. Sorry, not sorry. Paul makes the clear point, not only have I not attained full resurrection of the dead in the full sense of it being fully realized. Now, Paul is a believer. Paul has been saved. He has been redeemed. He's aware of his salvation. He knows the end destination. This is another one of those already, not yet. Has his resurrection from the dead been sealed at salvation? Yes. Has it been fully realized at this point? No. So he knows it is to come. I have not already attained this, nor am I already perfect. Perfect here is carrying the notion of being brought to completion. Again, we look at perfect, we understand how perfect is, and we talk about perfect all the time. But Paul is going to make this point, because if you remember the context, we're going to go back about two and a half months now. Okay, so put those caps back on. Go all the way back to two and a half or three months ago. The context was, the Philippians are doing well, there's a lot of good things he's commending them for, but he is needing to refute false teaching within the church of the Judaizers who are not just placing circumcision on par with the gospel, saying, yes, the gospel is important, but you must have been circumcised in order to truly be saved and putting on the Jewish ceremony and ritual again. But all the way back as to, um, likely based on the context, many would be saying that they had already attained perfection because of these things. So the same standing by which Paul has said, um, I was circumcised the eighth day, stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, giving what seemingly is a perfect Hebrew or Jewish resume, he is counting it as dung to refute the foundation and the legs that they're standing on. Many would have likely been teaching of the Judaizers, likely based on all the different contexts in Philippians and other places, would have been saying that they likely were to be perfect. So Paul is going to repeat this over and over about not attaining it, not being there yet, not being perfect. There's a lot of work left to be done. So Paul makes this point, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Remember, I've talked about grammar being important, right? Words are important. We kind of address it a little bit in the Sunday school as well. Words do actually have meaning. Words are important. So here, we're going to go look at the grammar just for one brief moment. I'm not going to do this to many of you. For the four people that enjoy it, this is just for you. Everyone else, though, smile and act as if you enjoy it. Okay? The perfect here is in a passive voice. Now, if you remember, when you're in school and you're learning about active versus passive voice, right, about throwing the ball maybe was the illustration, about, you know, did John throw the ball or was the ball thrown by John? You guys understand? You guys remember this? Right, I was in English classes for 12 years in a row learning the same exact stuff and didn't figure it out until after I graduated college, okay? Great timing. Frustrating. Okay, this is in a passive voice. Paul is making it clear, even just by the grammar and the way in which he writes it, that it is not Paul who is perfecting himself, but he is being perfected by somebody else. Think about that for just a minute. Paul knows he is not the one perfecting himself, but he is being perfected by somebody else. That somebody else is not going to be his best friend. That somebody else is not another person in the church. That person is simply God. God is the one perfecting Paul. Paul is very aware he is not the one who is even capable. He is incapable to perfect himself. It is simply 
God who is doing this. Now imagine, a quick reading, you could have left this and said, well, he just needs to try harder. He just needs to work on perfecting himself more. The grammar makes the large theological point right there for itself, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So he goes on with this. Not that I've already been made perfect, but I'm going to follow after. He's going to be pressing on. He's pressing on. He's moving forward. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. This press on, um, this pressing on or this following after is the same word that's used in Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 6. If you remember, he talked about concerning zeal, persecuting the church. And you remember, we talked about how he so passionately cared about the things of God, misguided though, that he was set out on his conversion experience. We remember he was on his way to persecute Christians. He cared so deeply that he was even going so far as to arrest and to want to murder and kill Christians. We see him in the background at the stoning of Stephen, uh, basically going around and saying, hey, let me hold your guys' coat so you can throw heavier stones more efficiently. This is the person that we are talking about. That's the zeal with which he persecuted the church. But yet now it's the same word that's being used in this verse to show the same zeal, the same passion, the same energy, and the same effort for which he is following after to apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ. Now, as, as a pastor who is preaching on a very familiar text, things get very difficult because you always want to try to be clever. You want to say, well, they've heard this kind of an illustration for years and years and years. It's not going to work. But this is the language, so bear with me. Okay? He's using the picture of a runner. How many of you have heard that with this text? We're going to go show of hands. We're Baptists. We raise hands. We don't talk. <laughs> okay? Some of you. Right? He's picturing himself as a runner pursuing a goal that is placed before him. This is an, Paul uses athletic language. He talks about athletics all the time. I get Paul. He, he, he's not talking about like craftsmanship and hunting and the manly things. He's talking about the fun stuff. That's why I get Paul, okay? I feel like he knows me. He is picturing himself as a runner pursuing a goal that is placed before him. Now, I never ran track. Our school didn't have it. We were too small but I would not have done very well. I would have had to be a distance runner, and even then at best, kind of middle of the pack, because I was lazy. My parents are here. They'll, my parents here will absolutely attest to that. Okay? But if you are pressing on, you are striving, you have a zeal, you have a passion, you have an energy, you're actually exuding full effort towards something, that is difficult. There is labor involved. It's not this careless walking around, but he is pressing on. He is following after. He is actively running. He uses this language again of a runner pursuing a goal placed before them. I'm sure some of you are familiar with the training that athletes undergo, especially to get to the Olympic level, whether it, well, in any event. It doesn't matter whether it's pole vault or swimming, any sort of Olympic event. Your whole life essentially is dedicated to the attain, attaining of that goal pretty much from a very early age all the way through, between diet, between workout regimen, between just time, which is difficult, the discipline that it takes in order to pursue that goal before him. So the question here would be, okay, so Paul is he's pressing on, he's following after for a goal, and he is running. Ask yourself, how is Paul able to run? How is he even able to? To run. He's not able to perfect himself. He's not able to do this. So how is it that he is able to then 
run? And ask, why does he run? Why is he running? Is he running away from something or is he running towards something? If you're running the 400-meter race for track, you could argue that you're running away from the gun that just got shot behind your head. But most likely, since there's not actually bullets in those, uh, gun goes off, you're running toward something. You are running forward. You're not running away from something that is behind you. You're forgetting about the starting line, and all you're worried about is coming all the way back around, running forward to finally get to that goal that you have set before yourself. But why is it that Paul runs? He answers this in that second part there of verse 12. He is running after. He is, he is moving forward. He is straining, going to be going towards the goal. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ. Do you notice what he, the point he makes at the end of verse 12? He is only able to run. He is only able to follow after and to apprehend that which is before him because he was first apprehended by Christ. Because Christ has laid hold of him. And some of your translations, I think the ESV has it of lay hold of him. This is the foundation for why Paul is running. Because Christ has first made him his own. Paul did not just set out and say, hey, I want to run for the goal of being made in the image of Christ, having no concept of, of who Christ is, having never been redeemed, having no understanding of these things. The order here is important. In our English Bibles, it looks backwards. The order is incredibly important here. Grace and grace alone is the foundation for Paul's pursuit as he is straining forward in his pursuit of holiness. It's, it's important that we understand this because as Romans 3 tells us, there is no one that seeks God. In the Sunday school we talked about before salvation, we are children of wrath. We are not born naturally inclined with a great desire to praise and worship God. And if we weren't sure and if we're not confident about it, just look back at your life prior to salvation or look at um, so many different examples that we know the Bible is very clear in our sin, man does not seek God. Paul here is making the point, I'm not already perfect, but God is the one who is able and the only one that can make these things happen. And he is making these things happen. But the whole foundation for why it is that I run is because I was first apprehended by Christ. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. The order of all of these things is incredibly important to understand. Because if we switch the order, if we say, look, Paul was doing so good, he was running so hard, it was so strenuous, and he was so dedicated, then Christ decided to apprehend Paul. We have made it now a works-based salvation, a works-based redemption, that because of Paul's great effort and striving, God looked down and said, wow, Paul, you're pretty good. That's fantastic. You have now earned salvation. You have now earned these things. We run because he has first laid hold of us. This kind of contradicts the let, uh, let go and let God concept a little bit. Now again, before we get worked up, I understand the concept of let go and let God, of saying let God be God, completely agree with that, but the idea that there is no role that the Christian plays, that the Christian is just simply sitting by, hands under their butt, just sitting there and saying, Lord's going to do what he's going to do and we're going to watch it. Uh, that was heavily rebuked in, in the, by the, to the Thessalonians. That is not the way in which we are to live. Paul is striving. He's not sitting idly by and just watching as ships are passing in the night and just saying, wow, that's pretty cool. 
He is striving. He is laboring. He's traveling to churches. He's ministering to people. He is actively involved being used as an instrument of mercy by God. Now we look at verse 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. Again, he's being very repetitive in the way in which he writes this. But notice, he softens it a bit as he's t- teaching them to, contra- to conflict and contradict this false teaching of perfection of what the Judaizers are saying. He adds in, as he's coming back around to the argument, he gives them a brethren as he writes to them, just kind of to soften it a bit. This a form, more informal address unifying them yet again. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. The reason he is going back and saying it again is he is employing a polemic argument. He's correcting false teaching with things that are true. I'm really into polemics. I like apologetics. I like refuting false things, as many of you are painfully aware of by now. It's important that when there are things that are not true, whether it's a blasphemous doctrine, just simply things that are not true, we have to correct those things. We must be accurate. We must be correct, particularly when it comes to things that are gospel issues, that do relate to salvation, that relate to who God is, to who Christ is. We can't just say, well, as long as they mean well. That does nothing for the person who is standing before God trying to say, well, didn't I mean well? That means nothing and does not help the person. So he softens this as he re- he's going to repeat what was just said. He's calling them brothers because, again, they are. He has their best interest at heart here. Refuting a concept of possible perfection. Yet again, saying, not that I've already apprehended because I'm not already perfect. You guys know that I grew up um, in the Wesleyan church, and one of the things that I've uh, studied throughout church history is that John Wesley, he had written a lot about this idea of being um, eternally sanctified or this stat of attaining perfection currently in this life and in this time, where you, could, you would no longer sin in word, thought, or deed. I, I've mentioned it before, and I've kind of chuckled and just said, show me one, right? Um, I think probably every half an hour, we all fail at least one, one of those things. Um, but in the way that he, he has written about it, the way that he has talked about it and taught it, uh, he, he gave himself this little caveat of, well, the, per, the Christian, the, the person who does it, it's not actually sin, it's just a mistake. It's a mistake. Man, I've made a whole lot of mistakes in my life, amen? Yeah, it's fantastic. Sinless. I've just mistaken a lot of things. But how dangerous it is to have a belief that in this time, prior to what Paul is talking about, resurrection of the dead, you will not attain perfection in this life. And those of you who are far older than me know, yeah, I'm still working at it, and it's not even close. You will not attain perfection in this life. He's looking forward to this resurrection of the dead that is going to come as, as the glorified bodies as we're resurrected and, and being in heaven. We all know uh, what, what it is that this looks like. But he is looking forward to these things, and we have not already attained it. Paul is clear that he himself has not reached it. But how does Paul respond to not reaching perfection? Some of you here, and this is going to be sensitive, some of you here are perfectionists. Everything has to be perfect, absolutely perfect. And you stress, and it bothers you, and you have great anxiety over when you walk into the building or wherever you go, and you just see, that's not perfect, that's not, this isn't right. Straightening paintings or whatever the case is. 
Um, I'm not a perfectionist. I'm sure you've noticed these things. How does Paul respond to not reaching perfection? Because this is a very difficult concept for a lot of people of, wait, but I, I can't? It's impossible to be made perfect in this time, in this life. It's not a, maybe I'll find the formula. There, no, it's not happening. It will not happen. And that can be bothersome to many. So how does Paul respond to this understanding as he's refuting those who are saying that you can be perfect and that they even are? How does he respond to this realization that he will not reach perfection in this life? Does he give up? It's often one response that many people have. Well, if I can't do it perfectly, I'm just not going to do it. Is he fatalistic about it and just gets depressed saying, well, there is no perfection. We're all just going to die at the end of the day. It's, it is what it is and just kind of throw our arms up. Does he do what so many others do and start blaming others around him, blaming the environment? Well, maybe I would have been able to, but I was born into this family, or this, my church didn't ever teach this or go through these, and we didn't sing these songs, or uh, my van didn't work, so I couldn't you know, get there on the day where the pastor said how to be perfect. Start blaming others around you and say, man, if, if my wife would do this, or if my husband uh, led better in the home, all these different things. Does it spur him to pursue perfection by his works? Does he now go back and say, I haven't already attained perfection. I know what to do. I was essentially perfect under the law. Let me drive myself back into that by metrics that I can look to. Going back to verses 5 and 6. Well, man, if I just remember that I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, touching the law of Pharisee, zeal, persecuting the church, righteousness. Does he dive right back into those things? But yet so many of these paths and avenues are the things that we jump into quickly is, we can't do this? Okay. Well, if it's impossible, why try? If I can't do it, what's the point? Well, I would do it, but this person doesn't let me. You, know, you, don't, you don't know what my family's like, or you don't know what all the, my work is like. Man, I try to be perfect at work, but you just don't understand. And blaming other people. Notice he doesn't go and give uh, 12 steps to Christian perfection or seven laws or a 40-day diet on how to be made perfect or five principles and all the books that we see. Kind of the get-rich-quick, but it's Christian version, so it's about holiness or something. He doesn't go and give you these lists of things in this way. He simply says one thing, but this one thing I do. And then he's going to add a lot of things into the middle, which we're going to come right back to. But I want you to slide down to verse 14. This one thing I do, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. One thing. If, that's, if all you walk away with this morning is that one thing, that is the literal one thing to take away from this. It's not all these steps. It's not all these different things. Well, how do I manage all of this? And what is it? All these things. No. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. If this one thing was good enough for Paul, it is far good enough for me. Because all of these other options are things that I would tend to default to. Well, if I can't do it perfectly, I just don't want to do it. It's probably not worth doing, you know. It's probably his fault. Or, well, if it can't be done... We're all just going to die anyways. I'm just going to give up. One thing that I do. Is it not encouraging to you that this exhortation is one thing? 
man, we have a lot of things to remember in life, don't we? A lot of complicated things. Here, step one, two, three, four, five, all of this list of things to do. One simple thing. Everything else comes into focus then. This is the foundation. Paul, again, is arguing for truth. He's talking about you're not going to reach perfection, but guess what? That's okay. It's not going to happen, but here's the one thing as I do. As I am striving, as I am pressing on, I am pressing towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So now we're going to slide back up to verse 13. After he says, but this one thing that I do, he says, forgetting those things which are behind. Sometimes we can be very forgetful. I usually would tend to forget about the things that I just didn't want to do, such as unloading the dishwasher or cleaning my room or turning in homework. I forget about the things that I just, I just didn't really want to do it, so I forgot them. Things that are really important to us that we really love to do, we often don't forget those things. When our heart is in it, we love it. That's the thing we're thinking about the whole time and saying, man, I have to do all these things I don't want to do just so I can finally do the one thing this whole week that I'm looking forward to. And some of you are like, yep, that's called being an adult. Forgetting those things which are behind. But here he's not talking about a lack of memory where if we age or if we're just forgetful and our memory just doesn't work the way that it used to where he has no recollection of them. It's, this is more to pay no attention to. Forget about it. Forgetting about these things because it has no effect. It's not going to be important. It doesn't hold any value to him. He is forgetting those things which are in the past. And notice he's not just talking about the failures or the bad things. Here's the things that he had just forgotten. That he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. A perfect, seemingly flawless Jewish-Hebrew resume. The best of the best. Massive successes. He's forgetting those things too. We look back in our life, and people can often live in, the, live in the past and say, hey, things aren't the way that they used to be. You know, church isn't the way that it used to be. And we keep looking back and saying, man, if it was just like this again, uh, we often kind of romanticize the early church as well. We say, man, if we could just get back to the way the early church was, things would be perfect. Who are they writing to constantly in the New Testament? The early church, right? Confronting heresy, all these different things. They messed it up a few short decades after Christ. Let's not think... They were perfect in these things. That's literally one of the primary audiences of these letters. But we look back off and we live in our past, but Paul is making it clear that his identity is not determined by his pre-conversion past. Do you think he walked around every day saying, man, I was a persecutor of Christians. I can't, I can't move forward. You know, I used to arrest and kill Christians. I can't, God can't love me because I did that. Well, God, if God knew what I've done in the past, which he does, how is God ever going to love me? And yet people come with all of these notions that because of what had happened prior, that they're fully unwilling to move forward. But he is not just talking about his failures. He's not just forgetting and putting no stock in those things which he did that were wrong or bad or just the failures. He is recounting a great resume and says, I am forgetting about that too. This is the Christian who has had tons of success prior to conversion 
uh, perhaps was very successful in business, held political office, was very well known, all of these things, becomes a Christian and is now forsaking all of these things, giving up money, giving all of these different resources that he had accrued. But instead of looking back and saying, God, this isn't fair. You made me give up all of these things. Look at what I used to have. And now you're telling me to give this stuff to people. I have to do all this. But what about everything back there? And we keep looking backwards at everything. And you're stuck in the same place 50 years later. This happens so frequently. Paul is forgetting all that that is before him. Reaching forth unto those things which are before. He is looking forward to what lies ahead. Again, a runner straining towards the goal. When you are running in a race, if we were all, this would be a funny picture. If everybody here were to go to Glenwood Springs High School, get on the track and line up. Okay, I don't know who's going to win, so we're not going to talk about that. But we're all getting there to line up. Where are you going to look when the gun goes off? You're going to look forward, right? I hope. If you look backwards, you're either going to get past or someone's going to run into you. When I first was learning how to drive, I, was, I did so poorly, by the way. I knew how, but I didn't really listen, take directions. My father will attest to that. We talk about it all the time. When you learn to drive, if you're going to drive a vehicle, how effective are you going to be driving if you're staring at the front end of your car? staring at the hood ornament that you have. How effective are you going to be in driving? Not very, right? Insurance is going up. You can't do it that way. If you're riding a bike and you're staring at your front tire, you're going to go down. If you're running on the track, if you're racing somebody and you're running, either looking behind you, first off, going to hurt your neck because that just hurt me right there. But the second thing is if you're running and just staring at your feet, you're going to trip and fall. I almost wanted to try this this morning, but I didn't want to fall in front of every one of you because you guys make fun of me too much. He is the runner straining how dare you, towards his goal. His eyes are set up. You're not looking down at where it is that you currently are. You're not looking back at what could have been in the past. You're not staring back and saying, man, if only I had done this differently. Um, man, if only people knew about this. They don't know about this. How could God? His eyes are up. Go to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. In Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, we see this continuation of where our eyes are to be in looking ahead. Wherefore, seeing we, are, seeing we also are compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Where are we to look? Looking unto Jesus. And it doesn't just say look unto Jesus and you're left going, okay, but why? Makes it clear because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. That is beginning to end. That is from the start all the way brought to completion and all of the in-between as well. The very beginning to the very end. The runner straining towards the goal. Where are you to look? To look up. And not just looking up at the sky. You're not just looking 
anywhere aimlessly, but looking first and foremost unto Christ. Are Christians not supposed to consistently be looking forward to that future hope? Why is it that the Christian is to have joy in the world? Because we live a life knowing our future hope, the certainty of what is to come. So when trials and the sufferings and all the things we've talked about at great lengths over the past number of months, it's because we don't just see the circumstance and go, yeah, this is hard, so I'm going to be, I'm going to be depressed. I'm going to be fatalistic. I'm just going to give up. Our eyes are constantly set on the future hope of, yes, we will endure suffering just as Christ, with the, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. How could he have done that if all he saw was suffering? He knows why he's doing it. It was established in the covenant before even time began, but covenant before creation, Father, Son, and Spirit all at play there. He is going to bring these things to pass because, again, understanding the results of this agreement of this covenant, and of his work. We should be the only people with true, lasting joy in the world as Christians. Has to be. Those apart from Christ, they have no future hope. There is no hope. This is all that it is. So when things are going bad, yeah, it stands to reason that it would be very devastating to you. But when you're looking forward to eternity, you know, Maintenance on the car isn't such a big deal. You can kind of get through that. Is it unfortunate? Is it frustrating? Sure. But in the large scheme of things, for, for, the, for the glory later, Christians are to be looking to this future hope. Continuing there in verse 14, and we're, we're almost there. After reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The goal, what is the goal? He is pressing towards a goal. A runner has a goal. The goal is the finish line. He's reaching forward to it. Those of you that have ever watched the track meets, you see all the runners at the end jolt their head forward to cross the finish line. Or the horses, you get the ticker tape finish, and it's a big thing, right? It's awkward, and people somehow don't fall when they do it. But you want to get there as quickly and as best as you can. Simply for the Christian, the goal is to be more and more like Christ. The goal is not to, have, to be at a bigger, better church. The goal is not to have status. It's not to have a television show on TBN or to publish all these books and to have all that you could have ever wanted in comfort. The whole goal is Christ-likeness. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, you don't need to turn there. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. For those for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. The reason that he saved you is the reason that you live. You were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, and that is the reason in which you live. Those things which you do, the way in which you live, the things in which you listen to, that you take in, the whole reason for all that you do, going back up to what Paul had already said in verse 12, because he was first apprehended of Christ. We pursue Christ. We pursue Christ's likeness, and that is the very reason by which 
we have been saved, to be conformed to the image of his son. It's not going to be easy. It could be very difficult. Straining towards the goal implies that there's some kind of opposition there, that it's going to be hard. It's not just a walk in the garden or a walk in the park, and we're just going to be fantastic walking on through. It's easy. It's simple. There is straining, and there is all of these things. But the prize, every runner, every, every competitive event has to have a prize, or else people wouldn't do that, right? It has to be a prize. So what's the prize? Paul has already alluded to this in the previous verses, but the prize is the perfection that comes with being found in Christ, seeing what he wrote in verse 9, not having a righteousness found on himself in the law, but that which comes from God on the basis of faith in Christ. So ultimately, in shorthand, what's the prize? He's the prize. You get across the line, he drags you across the line, pushing you through all the trials, pushing you through all these things, and perseverance and impatience works you across, and what's the prize? It's him. He started you on the starting line, brought you through the whole race, get him at the finish line. There's nothing more beautiful than the understanding that Christ has been with you, he will be with you, and will forever be with you. A question this morning is, is that prize enough for you? Do you actually strive? Do you actually seek to attain that prize? And it's not as if we just say, yeah, I want that prize, so I'm just going to go grab it. But are you actively running a race, especially for the Christian here this morning? Are you running? Are you striving? Are you reaching forward to anything? Or are we sitting, waiting just to be thrown across the finish line and just hoping that things are great? You know, I've struggled, particularly as a pastor, to find any biblical basis for retiring from being a pastor or a preacher and those things. It's a painful task trying to find it. I'm well aware, and I've said this publicly, I really don't get a retirement. And that's not just because Social Security is going to be bankrupt. It's not just that reason. I'm not going to have a retirement. There is no indication of that. It is essentially, as many pastors have said, their goal would be to die preaching, just drop dead of a heart attack in the pulpit. There is no point where I get to say, hey, man, as Paul has written to Timothy, fight the good fight. How do I know that fight is over when I'm dead? I don't get to say, man, I fought enough. I've won enough rounds. You don't understand what I'm up against. You know, I think I've done this for many years, okay? Especially at my age. I know none of you even want to hear anything even close to that. There is no thing. I could be 98 years old. I could be 110. There is absolutely no sitting back and being done or having done enough. And it's not in order to earn any kind of favor, to earn standing. It's not because, God, I want you to be impressed with my works and my merits. It's simply obedience and thanks and gratitude. We talked about Christ as Lord and Savior. The Lord part requires obedience. We can't just say, oh, thank God he saved me and just do what I always wanted to do. Obedience is still important. So this morning, I want us to keep our eyes pressing forward, setting our eyes upon Christ. That is our prize. That is everything that we ever desired. That is everything to us. You think about maybe the day that you got married. I think about my wedding. Often what happens is when the bride enters in the door, everyone gets really quiet. Everyone looks back and is, 
is looking at them, right? You guys ever notice kind of where, 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 where's the groom looking in a wedding? He's only looking at his bride. He and you guys were all invited to the wedding. It's awesome that you're there. Couldn't care less if you guys did show up. As long as he gets his bride at the end, he is happy. She walks in. That is all that he cares about is watching her. That is the way that a Christian is to approach the Christian life, the process by which we are conformed to the image of, of Christ, is to simply set our eyes there and never deviate, never look elsewhere. One simple focus, straight down the aisle. The gate is narrow. The road is also narrow. But walk that narrow road with your eyes fixed ahead. Again, patience and perseverance. God is the one that is doing the working. Simply walk in obedience, walk in thanks, walk in gratitude. There's no greater reality than that for the Christian who knows that Christ is doing all of these things. How could it fail? How could it not be done perfectly? It's a beautiful truth. But let's pray. Gracious Father, we, we thank you this morning for the truths of your word. We thank you that you have given us so many things that we can often take for granted. We thank you that you have given us the encouragement to walk worthy of our, our calling, that we would pursue holiness, that we would pursue righteousness as we continue to keep our eyes focused on, on your finished work on the cross. We know that there is no righteousness that we can attain on our own. There is no holiness that we bring to the table apart from that which you have given us by grace through faith. And we thank you for the simple truths this morning, something that is incredibly simple and things that we are very common with, that we're familiar with. But I pray that all of us here would run a race worthy of that which we have been called, that we would run a race with our eyes set on those things which are before us, not behind us. We praise you for those things that we are able to leave behind because of the cross, that we need no longer to look back and, and see that that's our identity, that because of who we are before you, that that, is, that that continues as if it will continue into eternity. We praise you in this place that we have been set apart and redeemed by the blood of your Son, his work on the cross, and we thank you for that salvation that you have secured. God, this morning I pray for for everyone here, that it would be an incredible encouragement or perhaps a conviction for some to strain towards the goal, to run a race with effort, with zeal, with energy, with passion, knowing where it is that we are running and who it is that we are running to. We know that our efforts are not that which give us standing or credibility or righteousness before you, but you have commanded us to run and as we continue to work out our salvation in our life and in our speech and in our deeds, Lord, I pray that you will continue to give us the courage and the boldness to stand out as lights in the world as we simply seek to show you in this place. God, I pray for this valley. I pray that churches in this valley would seek to honor you both in the way they worship through singing, through the preaching of the word, and through the way in which the Christians in this area live. God, we know that there's a lot of spirituality 
that is here. There is a lot of things in this valley specifically and continuing out throughout our state and our nation as a whole that seek to rebel against you. And we know that these are things which, which are offensive to you, that they grieve you. God, I pray that as Christians come into conversation with those things, as we interact on a daily basis with those that are not believers, those that do not know you or your truth or your word, I pray that we would be bold to speak those things, being willing to endure suffering or persecution as it may come, that we would share in those sufferings. God, I just pray that you, you would allow us and give us strength to be a people set apart for you, to be used by you in every single day, in every single situation. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. As Mrs.